Hi, this is the Bring a Brick podcast, interviewing professionals from around the world who use improvisation in their work and in their life. I'm your host, John Cooper. In this episode, I'm speaking to Drew Tarvin. Drew is an award-winning speaker and trainer who teaches organisations how to use humour to be more effective in the workplace. He's the author of four books, including an Amazon bestseller called Humour That Works, which is also the name of his company, 501 Ways to Use Humour to Beat Stress. And like me, he's also a stand-up comedian and improviser. So there's a little bit of digression there. Hello, Drew. Hello, how are you doing, Jan? I'm good, I'm good. Do you prefer Andrew or do you prefer Drew? Uh, either is fine. Andrew is for uh, search engine purposes uh, for my business stuff, and Drew is more of the comedy side of things. So okay. uh, either one, whichever one naturally comes out of your mouth is fine. Okay, cool. So I'll give you a little intro. Um, Andrew is uh, he's an award-winning speaker and trainer. Uh, he has a company called Humor That Works, which teaches individuals and organizations how to use humor to be more effective. And you are the author of four books, including... Humor that works. Five hundred and one ways to use humor to beat stress, increase productivity, and have one that work. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Good. Working I'm... on uh, my fifth and sixth one right now. I'm I'm weird in that I'm kind of juggling both uh, two of them at the same time. But uh, yeah, so uh, author as well as trainer. Okay. So what's the book you're working on at the minute? Uh, the book right now is uh, 50 States, 50 Stories. So last year I completed uh, my goal of speaking or performing in all 50 states in the United States. And so I have a story kind of that I'm telling from each state. So I'm kind of recapping that uh, journey in a memoir, kind of comedic memoir style. Okay, okay. Because you spent a year as a as a nomad, did you not? That's correct, yeah. So I put all my stuff in storage um, uh, and started traveling around and visiting different places. And I went to 50 states, 14 countries, 142 cities, and about 150,000 miles or so traveled, which uh, I looked up as about the equivalent of six trips around the globe. Wow, wow. Well, we'll dip into that in a bit because I've got that down as one of my notes. But I just want to kind of rewind the clock a bit and kind of bring us back to to um, Im- improv as a thing. Uh, the goal of the podcast is to find interesting people who work in improv and applied improv and just how they got there and what they do. So basic question 101, how, how did you discover improv? How did you get into improv initially? How did you find it? Sure. So uh, I was uh, attending the Ohio State University in Ohio in the U.S. and uh, getting my degree in computer science and engineering because uh, that's my background. That's my training. I've always been an engineer. And uh, while I was at Ohio State, my best friend wanted to start an improv comedy group. He needed people and kind of forced me to join. And uh, that was my introduction into it. I I was never growing up. I never thought of myself as a performer. I never did theater or anything like that. But it was uh, a group of six of us deciding that we wanted to start this improv group because we thought it would be fun. And we watched uh, Whose Line Is It Anyway, both yeah. the U.S. and the U.K. version, and we tried to repeat what we saw. And uh, we were terrible for a long time, but uh, the more we did it, the better we got. And I started to fall in love with uh, this realization that I, as a, an introvert, someone that's a little bit more quiet, could actually you know, get on stage and make people laugh. Okay, okay. You mentioned that you studied engineering. I noticed in your bio you say you are a, a humor engineer. I'm guessing mm-hmm. you weren't in the early doors, you weren't really connecting the two together that much at that point, or were you thinking that far ahead? Or 
No, when I first started it, it was uh, just a thing of like, hey, we're in university. This is something fun. We're enjoying it. And we, we always had a lot of fun as a group of friends. And so we started as six friends and auditioned people right away and kind of got some other people in. But it always felt kind of like we were just friends having structured conversations in front of an audience that made them laugh. And so it was just something that was enjoyable. And then from that, some of us started doing stand-up comedy as well. We figured, hey, if we can do improv, we can do stand-up. And it turns out that stand-up was a lot harder, at least for me. Um, but I fell in love with it again, making people laugh and uh, all of that. And it wasn't until later, it wasn't until I started working at Procter & Gamble that I started to see that the things that I was learning to be a better improviser were the same things that I needed to be more effective in the workplace. Yeah, yeah. So likewise, I mean, we're both stand-up comedians, and it's kind of I use a bit of improv in my stand-up as well. Um, just going back to what you said about, would you consider yourself to be an introvert? Are you an introvert or an extrovert? In, uh, definitely an introvert. So if you know Myers Briggs, my Myers Briggs is INTJ. Uh, mm -hmm. If you know Star Wars, I'm R2D2. Okay. I think is the translation. Yeah. And and does that does that inform the way you think about stuff when you're teaching? do you think it does certainly a little bit i think that um for me you know i think the fact that i'm intj specifically which is more of like typically the the science person and the you know the fact that probably more driven by the fact that i'm very much an engineer and came up through engineering yeah is that all of my workshops are very deliberate in terms of the exercises that i'm doing so there's nothing in there just to be silly right i'm very against kind of considering what i do silly yeah uh, i think yes. there's value in it but i it's not what i do yeah uh, and everything that i do has a very specific purpose and the way that i facilitate is you know trying to balance that there's some people in a, a room are going to be extroverted and quick to answer and other ones are going to need a little bit more time to process uh, exactly what they want to say and so kind of facilitating it to balance both of those but a big i mean for me recognizing improv was huge because it gave me the the ability to practice certain skills that maybe extroverts had already practiced a little bit more social yeah, skills yeah. and that kind of stuff but improv gave me this safe fun environment to be able to do it uh, yeah. as well okay i mean i am I, i'm probably going to digress a little bit as i'm kind of talking to you because i'm fascinated just about your mindset and how you deal with it and then i'll kind of draw the threads together later on as we go because um, you just said, you, I, I mean, we've met a few times now. We met, I think, in New York many <laughs> moons ago. And from what I know of you, you are quite a serious person. How <laughs> does that? How did that relate to that? Because if I'm looking at improv as a thing, there's there's very it's very easy for people to look at it and go, that's silly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's kind of do you how do how do you approach that as a thing? How did you? What, what what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say because I have the same problem when I look at people doing improv and it's kind of I'm very serious about it but I find that when people come across it initially they can go oh that's just some people being silly but it's not it is very kind of technical as a thing do you do you find that you have to justify it in any way shape or form? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that people, when they hear, when people hear the term applied improv, they have no idea what it means. Because when people hear the word improv, they sometimes are, don't, aren't for sure what it means. Because they hear improv and they think stand-up comedy. Someone's like, yeah. if you're like, oh, I do improv, they're like, oh, tell me a joke. And it's like, well, that's not improv. Yeah. 
I hate uh, that. <laughs> right. I, I hate uh, it when people say, tell me a joke. It's one of the worst things that people can say. Yeah. And so it's just, it's just a misconception that people have. They don't, they, it's just not, you know, in the general ethos for a lot of people to fully understand what it means. And so what that means is as an applied improviser, I have to be more clear on how I explain it. And the other thing is that, and I talk to a lot of other applied improvisers about this is that applied improv for many of our clients, it's not a what. Our clients don't care about applied improv. What they care about is the results that they get. And so applied improv is a how. It's an incredibly effective how, incredibly effective way to train people on communication skills or leadership skills or collaboration or problem solving or creativity or, you know, X, Y, and Z. You can name, you know, basically any soft skill that's out there. Applied improv has an ability to train it in a very effective way that it, you know, it gets people laughing. It gets people to help build their relationships, but it's so much more. It gives them an opportunity to experience an aha moment so that they kind of learn, like truly learn what's going on and then also an ability to practice it. And I think that's why as an engineer, right, that's my background. I am somewhat serious. Um, I joke and play and all that kind of stuff, but I do it because that's what works with human beings. That's what I recognized. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's the, the, what you're saying there. It's very interesting about how it, it it is a how, and and when you go and you, I mean, improv as performers, then applied improv as going in and doing work for someone and solving a problem for them. Do you find that you have to frame frame? I mean, you you you're, it's it's a how, so you can't really present it as a thing. Do you have to frame the when you sell applied improv someone? You have to frame it in a way that they'll understand, which might mm-hmm. mean not actually using the term applied improv because their language is slightly different and they may not necessarily get what that is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the you know all effective communication is relevant and relatable to the other person, so it's all about framing it in a language that they understand. And so my programs, like when you first initially hear about them, you might not fully understand that they incorporate applied improv in some ways. So like uh, one of my popular topics right now is leading on your feet, which is the art and science of leadership through improvisation. And so that one has improv in the title, but it's the very last thing because it's the that's the how again. It's it's to meant to pique yeah. curiosity, but what they get is the ability to lead on their feet, to think on their feet, to react in the moment, to be proactive through change. And so, in the description, again, it very quickly mentions that it's done through applied improvisation and that it comes from improv principles. But more importantly, they're learning, you know, the difference between intention and action, and the dangers of unleadership and uh, the importance of psychological safety and creating a growth mindset and all these other things. And so, you know, that's in the description. And then the other thing that I do is that I am very intentional about connecting to thought leaders already in the space. And so kind of like I just mentioned, psychological safety is something that's becoming bigger and bigger because it comes out of Google and Project Aristotle. And they found that one of the most important things for an effective team is that people felt like they had a sense of psychological safety. And that's a hard thing to train uh, if you're just reading it out of a book. But using applied improv, we can teach some of those principles in an effective way. Psychological safety. Is that like Mm -hmm. uh, comfort zones or not? Or... Yeah, so it's kind of comfort zones. It's essentially kind of articulated by the the psychologist that term the phrase kind of articulates it in, in kind of two key things. One is that the 
people of the team, the members of the team feel that they can be comfortable speaking out without um, being, you know, reprimanded or that it being a bad thing. So they can kind of call attention to say, hey, if they think something's not going to work, they can kind of speak their mind. So it's not hierarchy driven, but it's more about input. And then also that they can be themselves at work. Right. We're seeing this shift where authenticity, authenticity in the workplace is really important because people realize when you can be more your authentic self at work, you're going to um, if you're in the right role, you're ultimately going to do a much better job than trying to be trying to pretend to be someone that you're not. And so psychological safety is those two things. And so the question becomes, how do you train that? How do you train a group of managers to create psychological safety? And one of the you know, it requires a lot of empathy. It requires clear communication skills. And these are things that we can train using applied improv. That's 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 really fascinating. That's really interesting. People are, being authentic is is a very big thing. I mean, as I say, we we are both stand ups, and I and I teach stand up. And I mean, this is me interviewing you. But one of the things that I find is that when people come and go on the stand up course, I use improv skills to teach them stand up, and they're looking to be authentic. They're looking for their voice. And one mm-hmm. of the thing, one of the things we talk about is kind of like you know when you have different social groups, do you find yourselves to be different people in those different social groups? You know because people have different like masks that they wear in, in different groups, and you will have your work head on, so to speak, mm-hmm. when people are at work. And it's 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 fascinating to to just you know from what you're saying about finding that truer version of themselves that they are safe to present at work. As opposed to going into work mode and, and wanting to switch that off at five o'clock when you quit, when you leave the job, you know. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, people recognize that in today's culture, the job doesn't stop when you go home. You still have so many people have, uh, you know, their work cell phones or check yeah. emails every now and then, or even, you know, on Sunday night you start to plan the week ahead. Yeah. And so that the idea that you know work stops when you go home we know isn't true. So it's also true that home doesn't stop when you go to work. You know, the flip doesn't happen. And the more I think the people typically the people that enjoy their work more um, have friends at work, they have people that they enjoy and they, they can be their more natural self. And now that's not to say, you know, um, to be the uh, you know, the conversations that you have with your your best friends are going to be a little bit different than you're going to have with your coworkers. You still yeah. want to present the best version of yourself, but that you're still feeling authentic that the representation of you at work is you yeah and that's totally a through line to to improv and improv practice because that's what you discover as you do it mm-hmm. yeah that's awesome okay right um i'm gonna duck back a bit i'm digressing but we are gonna go so you you start out at procter and gamble is that right Yep. Yeah. So I uh, graduated with a degree in computer science and engineering and had a minor in business and started working at Procter & Gamble first as an intern before I graduated. And then um, after I graduated, started working there as a uh, international IT project manager. OK. And, and at what point did you kind of then transition? Because you, your company is Humor That Works, which is an awesome name. Um, in I've written it in the English version on my notes, uh, yes. but obviously there's a there's a there's the a you that's contentious. Um, I, yeah. I love the brand and I love the name Humor that works because it does exactly what it says on the tin in terms of it's a brand that says what it does, which is which is great and that's like the efficiency of words is is really good. So when did you when did you kind of go okay I see this connection and I'm gonna go out on my own and build this thing. 
Yeah, so it started uh, started first internally at uh, PNG. Like I said, as I was doing more in Im- improv, I started to realize it's the reason I, I was being effective in the workplace. And my first week on the job, my manager gave me uh, some of the best career advice I've ever uh, been given, and that is that it's better to beg for forgiveness than it is to ask for permission. And uh, it's you know it's it's advice that a lot of people have heard, but for me as someone coming fresh out of university, it was incredibly empowering because it gave me ownership of what it was that I was doing and it gave me permission to kind of try different things. And so, you know, as a, as a young upstart university uh, person, I was kind of like, you know what, I'm going to see if he really means that. So I wanted to like kind of toe the line a little bit. And so the way that I tested him was I started to do things to make my job more fun. So I started uh, adding jokes at the end of my emails and started sending videos around that I thought were humorous to some people on my team. I started teaching improv exercises to, to some of my project team members uh, as a project manager for that team and started to realize that, hey, this was working and no one was you know, telling me that I couldn't do it. So uh, I got a little bit bolder. And the thing that I thought for sure someone was going to tell me that I couldn't do was that I proclaimed myself the corporate humorist of Procter & Gamble. Uh, I right. started a blog, got business cards with my with the title of corporate humorist, and, and Procter and Gamble is a pretty. I mean, it's gotten uh, less conservative over years, but you know, it was the original kind of suit and tie type place, so it has a little bit of a more conservative culture. So I assumed someone was eventually gonna you know tell me that I couldn't just make up my own job title, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, no one ever did. Instead, people started referring to me as a corporate humorist, and so uh, that started internally. I blogged uh, internally for about. A year or so, and then I was like, "Hey, if this is working in PNG, it might work outside of PNG." So I started Humor That Works in 2009, part time, and then uh, continued to do both improv, this applied improv stuff, and um, worked at PNG for the next three years. And then in 2012, I left to pursue uh, building up Humor That Works full time. Yeah, was was that a big leap? Did you kind of were you kind of already kind of doing all right with humor that works before you made the leap or did you have to kind of hit a tipping point where you go i'm gonna have to go all in on this yeah it wasn't uh it wasn't that big of a leap you know as a project manager i'm relatively risk adverse and so from 2009 to 2012 somewhere in there i decided that leaving was something that i was maybe going to want to do and so i gave myself criteria that i had to meet before i could leave so i i said you know, I need to do X number of uh, engagements. I need to have this many clients. I need to have made this much money from it to basically prove to myself, to give myself a reason to believe that it was valuable and that I could be successful and that it was willing up. Give me, it was, I, I should be willing to give up a job that I really enjoyed at PNG. It just wasn't mm-hmm. as quite what I wanted with the the training piece. And so, over three years, I kind of did that and got more and more comfortable. And you know, I've I've made a couple of you know, kind of bigger decisions in my life. And, and every single time that I have, whether it was, you know, taking a job at P&G or leaving P&G or moving to New York with P&G prior to that, or, you know, becoming a nomad later is I've asked myself the two questions of what will I regret most not doing? So when I'm older, what would I regret more not doing? Uh, And what's the worst that could happen? And, you know, I would regret not trying to start my own business. And the worst that could happen with leaving P&G and starting my own is that, I could fail miserably, and then I would just get another corporate job within the IT sector. Right, right. I mean, there's there's that there's that whole thing about. I mean, wouldn't, there is no failing. There's only learning. Is like well, mm-hmm. it's like Tony Robbins NLP stuff to yeah. to a degree. But it's like it's absolutely right. And and there's there's stuff that that kind of I've kind of in I did a well I did a 
again, digressing. I did a tiny bit of NLP like last year, and there was a bit of a scorn. Some of this is improv. Some of this is the same thing as improv. It's kind of like you can't you can't learn unless you fail, unless you do, and that's about being mm-hmm. in the moment and just kind of engaging to the point where you're doing it. So I'm guessing you're you're kind of teaching applied improv, but you're also would would you say that? I'll I'll, I'll rephrase that as a question. In 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 doing the work that you're doing, are you then applying the your knowledge of improv to your work in in terms of you know you you you've got to be in the moment to make the decision Does that yeah make sense? absolutely yeah. Uh, yeah and i think i think that's one of the you know one of the biggest benefits for me personally having done improv now for 10 years 11 years 12 years something yeah. like that uh, i don't remember exactly it i think we started 2005 but is, you know, yes and is a fundamental mindset. That's so ingrained yes. in me that I have a yes and mentality of when something happens. It's like, okay, that's happened. I'm not going to dwell on, you know, yeah. I'll learn from it. I can see what worked, what didn't work. But based on where we are now, how can I build from there? Yeah. And that's definitely, you know, a mentality that has worked for me in terms of the business and has worked for me in terms of what I do. Because, like, a lot of times people are like, oh, wow, it's interesting all these things are coming together, even being a nomad and all these stories. And it's not like, it's not like I pre-planned everything and I knew exactly what I was going to do. It's more looking back on based on things that I've done so far. What can I do next? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, as you say, you you were a nomad. How did that? How did that decision come about? When when did uh, you decide to do that? Yeah. So that was uh, it was um, a more practical decision than a lot of people think it would be of you know putting all your stuff in storage and just roaming around and living out of two bags. Um, but basically I was living in New York, um, and was going to move from my apartment. My lease was up in my apartment and I knew I was going to move because, um, I just wanted a different location and things were, you know, the area was loud and all that kind of stuff. It was a great location, but it was loud. And, um, right when I was going to move, I had six weeks of travel, six weeks of pretty much consecutive travel. I had two different trips over to Europe and a couple of other trainings that I was doing and I was like, man, I don't want to like do all this work to find an apartment to only not live in it for the next two months, basically, and also yeah. pay all that rent in New York. And so I was like, ah, I wonder, you know, for those two months, could I just put myself in storage and you know live out of two bags? And those two months turned into eighteen months. Mm-hmm. And what was the what was the biggest challenge of, of of doing that? Was there anything that you hadn't? That obviously stuff comes up and you just have to deal with it. What was the biggest challenge you had while you were doing that? Yeah, I think I mean two of them. One being sick on the road is awful. Okay. I, I hate being I hate being sick, but when you're on the road, it's even worse. And so I, I got sick, I think, once, maybe twice. And basically at those times, just got into a hotel and stayed in that hotel for like two days until I recovered, you know, like ordering food and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So being sick was a little bit more challenging. And I realized luckily I didn't have to deal with it too much. And then I think the other kind of, you know, surprise or the recognition was as an introvert, there's a lot of great time on the road to kind of be by myself, but then there's also times because I, I mix kind of crashing on people's couches, friends' couches, and staying with a lot of people within uh, the organi- like CSE organization. Yeah, yeah. But then also, you know, friends and family, and then doing some Airbnb and that kind of stuff, and being very intentional about managing my energy. That there are times where oh, I could have gone out and seen some friends in the city that I was staying in, but I needed a night kind of to myself in a hotel room or something like that to recharge on my own. So just figuring out the right way to manage energy while also, you know, kind of seeing people and stuff as well. Yeah, how did you, just out, out of interest, did you were you able to eat healthily living out of hotels? 
Um, I certainly, uh, not as healthy as I would like. I got it a little bit better towards the end, but certainly, uh, I mean, I've always been blessed with a, a good metabolism, so I've always been relatively skinny. Um, you know, I joked that I was born 8.3 pounds, which huh. is like 3.7 kilograms and then stayed that way till I was 15 years old. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Cause I've always been very, very skinny, but certainly from the trip, I, I got to the fattest that I had ever been. Um, and not that it was like fat, but it was just bigger than I had ever been. And it was because partially because it's harder to eat healthy on the road. And also because I was traveling to all these places. And at least for me, when I'm traveling somewhere, like I don't want to get like, I don't want to get the best kale salad in montana no i want to eat the thing that is there and so like i had a chicken alfredo burrito in montana and it's like that's a very heavy very high calorie food but i wanted to experience it while i was there so uh it was certainly a challenge and something to you know continue to get better at because i continue to travel a decent amount even though i'm no longer a nomad yeah i've been i've been touring a few times and only recently uh discovered that like airbnb and the quality where you can actually go somewhere that has an oven or a cooker and mm-hmm. you, can, you can make stuff and that from previous to is where it's just a hotel room and you're literally just eating sandwiches it's kind of like you know if i say another sandwich i'll shoot myself yeah um, so yeah so you so you're continuing to travel now and you're still traveling around to teach yeah, so uh, I I live I'm based in New York again, so I've moved back to New York. Um, but yeah, my my work is I work with uh, organizations on how to be more effective. And so, you know, for example, I just I was here in New York for three weeks and did a couple of events and did a lot of writing for some of the books and stuff. But then I was gone for three weeks and I went to to L A and I um, did an event. It was great. I, I did this event uh, for the International Association of Canine Professionals. Uh, right. which is a group of people, dog, professional dog trainers, which I didn't know they had like an association, but it was, I did the opening keynote for it. It was wonderful. Did some applied improv exercises because they wanted to start the, the conference off with the, something fun and also something that build the relationships in the room. And so it was a mixture of keynote, uh, stuff, which is more like stand up, being able to tell some jokes that way, as well yeah. as have a message on the value of humor. And then a lot of applied improv exercises that, kind of demonstrated those key things that I was talking about, but also gave people an opportunity in the audience to meet each other in a very safe way where you don't have to like be awkward and like try to introduce yourself, but instead you're kind of being forced to do something. And so you build the relationship. Ah, so, so I was, I was just about to say, have you done improv for dogs? (laughs) I, I wish there's dogs in the audience. Yeah. So I, I joked with them when I first got the email from, uh, you know, the, uh, association of canine professionals, I thought it might be, who had jobs yeah um which would have would have been fun but it was also a great group there's they're incredibly well-trained dogs there that you know even throughout exercises applied improv exercises people standing up and walking around and stuff like that they were you know ne- not a single bark or anything like that okay so it sounds like you get quite a diver i mean na- the, the very nature of improv and, and, and teaching improv means that you can apply it to anything which is mm-hmm. what the podcast will cover in future weeks but it was it, i also assume that you have quite a diverse range of clients and you would that be correct absolutely i mean when i talk to people i typically tell them i target engineers tech people project managers because that's yeah. my background and uh, i've found that it, it helps people better understand what i talk about when i say you know i teach engineers how to be more human I teach them the business skills they need to go along with the technical skills. And what happens is people learn a little bit more about what they do. And they're like, oh, can you do that for people in sales? Can you do that for people in 
HR? Can you do it for people that are in, uh, you know, this industry or that industry? Mm-hmm. And so it continues to build. Yeah. So my, my primary kind of target is, is tech, but, you know, within the last month or two, I did, you know, the canine professionals. I did a group of entrepreneurs. I did a group of, um, specifically introverts from a bunch of different areas, done a group, uh, you know, an HR group at a pharmaceutical company, all that kind of stuff. So it's once people kind of see what it is, it's, you know, leadership is needed at all types of walks of life and communication skills are needed or humor skills are all needed. And so, uh, my job as a facilitator is to be able to bridge that connection. I don't have to be an expert in the topic. I just have to be in the an expert in the ability to facilitate an experience so that they connect the topic that we're talking about with their role. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And what you're saying there, when they see it, because it's kind of that's one thing that that I find with my experience of comedy sports and going out and doing those workshops and shows, people need to see see it in practice in order to then make their own connection about can you apply it to x y and z um absolutely that i think is the challenge for us as applied improvisers is that it's hard to on paper and even in some ways in video kind of prove what we do it's when people see it and they see what the impact is on the people in the room how people are engaged and how they're laughing and having a good time but also how in the debrief they're saying the key learning points that you wanted them to walk away with That's when people are like, okay, I get it. And that's why a majority of my business is driven by word of mouth and referral. And that's, you know, it's very important for me to be really, really good at what I do so that when people see me, they're like, okay, I understand this. And here's other places that it could be applied. Yeah. Yeah. What, what is Have you got any examples of anything particularly diverse in terms of the clients or people who've asked you to do stuff? Anything really unusual? Uh, I mean, the canine professional is probably the, the most interesting group, at least recently, um, for sure, because again, it was an association that I didn't know existed. Um, as far as I've, uh, aside from that, no, I mean, I've worked with some very what types of groups. So I've worked with like scientists and researchers mm-hmm. and stuff and groups that, um, people typically think of as very, uh, as less, you know, um, less fun, I guess, yeah, you know, yeah. you think of like, oh, that seems like a very serious group. And again, you know, seriousness, seriousness is not the antithesis of humor. In fact, humor is incredibly valuable in all walks of life. And yeah. the more serious something is, maybe the more important it is for stress management, relieving stress, Absolutely. strategically disengaging, Absolutely. all that kind of stuff. And so I've worked with a wide range of groups and people are kind of sometimes surprised of like, oh, that seems like they'd be a little bit more serious. And even more conservative cultures, I think, you know, finance groups and stuff like that, they they appreciate that I have an engineering background. And even though I'm talking right. about you, the fact that I worked at Procter & Gamble, the fact that I have experience in a Fortune 500 company, I'm an engineer, all that kind of stuff, it gives them more comfort knowing that I'm not going to come in and just say, you know, let's play these games for the sake yeah, of play. Absolutely. And again, yeah. there's some people that do that and there's value to it, but it's not what I do. Everything that I do is very specifically driven by the objectives of the workshop and are, are, you know, driven by the learnings of how do we best, you know, teach this specific skill. And we're teaching this specific skill because based on the research and what we've seen from other companies, we know that it works. Yeah. So your background is actually informing and helping them make the decision about kind of taking that risk with improv, so to speak. Because um, you, you're dealing with quite serious business guys. These are quite high up business guys. What are they? I mean, there's, there's things that I've kind of come across in the past is 
uh, you will do say a, a workshop with someone but then when you have the initial meeting they're kind of like okay so apart from having fun what are the takeaways how do we actually <laughs> nail down what we'll get out of this when it's just people moving around in a room and laughing and enjoying themselves it's kind of what are the actual solid takeaways so to speak is there do you have a, a particular way of explaining how those you know what what the what the ongoing benefit of the service and or product is yeah so i mean i start with i start with asking questions i start with you know because it is applied improv everything that i do even the keynotes that i do are tailored to the organization so i talk with them about what are their objectives you know Based on their employee surveys, what are they seeing as something that they need to build on or based on kind of what the leadership is coming up with? You know, what is what skills do they say are very valuable that are needed and what's the language that they're already using about it? Because I want my programs to feel like a natural fit for the attendees. I don't want them to feel like, oh, this is something new and we've never heard it before. Um, You know, it's more often like, oh, okay, yeah management starting to talk about growth mindset like growth mindset's a big one right now and growth mindset is a yes and mindset basically and so when people are like oh yeah we're trying to instill a a more positive culture with growth mindset it's like oh okay great well this is how we can you know it's one thing to to watch carol dweck's ted talk on the value of growth mindset and read Mm -hmm. a book and all that kind of stuff but what would it be like if your employees could experience what it's like to live in a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset Oh, well, that would be valuable. Oh, okay, great. Well, we have this exercise, yes and versus yes but, that does that perfectly. It yeah. lets them experience in the moment what that difference is like. And so, again, it starts with, for me, applied improv is what I say later. It starts first with what are the objectives? What are the key learning points that we'll take away? Yeah. So, again, talking on the, you know, whether it is they'll be more confident in presenting information. They'll be able to uh, think more effectively on their feet or they'll have more of a growth mindset or they'll understand psychological safety or what are these keywords, what are these key objectives that they're trying to do? And oh, by the way, the way that we do it is through these exercises so that they experience it. And, you know, to me, the fun part is almost, it's an added bonus. I don't lead with the fact that it's fun, but it's the added bonus at the end of, oh, by the way, they're actually going to be engaged for the entire thing. No one's going to be you know, checking out and kind of getting other work done or going through emails because mm-hmm. it's going to be active and they're going to build a relationship with the people in the room. So for conferences, that's great because it serves as an icebreaker. And for companies, it's great because it builds the relationships, across, especially sometimes across silos when you have more than one work group coming in together. And so there's tremendous value in multiple different ways. And so I, I lead with the most important, which is the skill that they're trying to build and then kind of mention, hey, here are the other benefits as well. Yeah, cool, cool. Okay, so I'm I'm, I'm going to kind of drill down a bit to you personally. What do you get out of doing the work that you do? What are your personal What are your personal takeaways from from working in this field and going into these places? How do you What What is the biggest thing you get out of doing it? Well, I, I some of it's selfish. I, I first started some of the work that I, I started was selfish in the mindset of I was sitting in so many boring meetings at Procter and Gamble. And none of it's intentional, right? No one's ever intentionally like, I want to have a terrible meeting. I want to be so boring today that people like want to claw their eyes out. Yeah. No one's intentional about it, but so many people do it. And so at, at P&G, it was like, these meetings should be better. I know how they could be better. Oh, well, maybe I should start training them on how to be better uh, so that I don't have to experience these terrible meetings. Um, and so it started kind of selfishly out of that. And then it became... 
you know, it's it's to me, it's the perfect intersection of what I want to do. I love performing. I love improv and stand up and still do it. But I yeah. love speaking and training even more because I get to do I get to tell jokes. I get to use a lot of humor in what I do because it's effective. And I get to tell people how to be more effective at what they do. I get to help to inspire people to enjoy their work a little bit more because it's going to make them better at what they do. But also the fact is. You know, at least in the U.S., the average person will work 90,000 hours in their lifetime. And it's like if you're going to work 90,000 hours in your lifetime, the yes and mindset is you might as well enjoy it. Yeah, you're going to do the work anyway. Yeah. You might as well have some fun while doing it. And the, you know, just kind of the feedback that I get from people, the thank yous that I get, the testimonials that I get as a result of, you know, hey, thank you for kind of opening my eyes to this or thank you for giving us permission to do this or thank you for giving us the skill set to be able to be more effective at what we do. It's like. To me, that's what I think is really enjoyable. Yeah, that's 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 awesome. That's that's. I mean, that's set me thinking. I turned and again, just to flip it around, I I turned forty not so long back, and, and we're both stand ups. And the one thing that um, it's kind of like, okay, I've been doing stand up for X many years, and I, I I went to a gig once, and uh, there was an act that came off stage, and they were really promising, but they weren't quite hitting the marks. And I gave them advice, and they just threw it back in my face. And it's kind of like, yeah, well, they didn't ask for advice, and I gave it. So, so, I, so I should probably just shut up. But then there was a bit of us thinking, well, I, I because of the kind of hard nosed nature of some stand up, it's kind of like you've accrued all this knowledge, and, and you know, then it's it's like you're later in life, you move from kind of, you know, there's a, almost like a, a maternal instinct to want to pass on knowledge once you know it. And and just from what you're saying, it's like it's triggering me off to say, well, I I want to share in a way the stuff that I have learned, and it's far easier to share through improv and through that kind of humour than it is through stand-up humour and kind of like you know, it's far easier to to have that group mentality than than when you're in a comedy club and say to someone, oh, this joke could have been better because you could have done X, and then you just get it thrown back in your face because that's not the right atmosphere to be given that kind of advice, you know? Yeah. Um, for sure. Well, and stand-up is, I love doing stand-up, but stand-up, you know, you have to stop short of preaching in stand-up, right? Yeah. You can you can point to the absurdities of things, and it can be a great catharsis, and I'm sure you've done the shows. I've done the shows where people have come up afterwards and have been like, you know, thank you so much. I really enjoyed your show, and, yeah. you know, I remember the first time it happened when I was um, emceeing a show, and a guy came up afterwards, and he was like, thank you for making me laugh. You know, my best friend passed away last weekend. And I don't think I've so much as smiled as since it's happened, but coming to the show gave me a chance to kind of laugh again and take a break from that, not focus so much on it. So it serves as a great catharsis, but it yeah. does stop short intrinsically because it's comedy. And in a club, it has to stop short of here are some absurdities here. We can laugh about them, but it stops short of telling you what you can do about it. And, and speaking and training is here are some of these absurdities. It's it's crazy that we work these many hours and that we take it so seriously uh, and that we get so stressed out about it when here are some tips that you can do to make it more uh, manageable and also you're going to do a better job as a result of it. And so for me, it's kind of that that sweet spot of yeah. the the humor and the engineering. That's why that's the phrase that I call myself as a humor engineer is that it's bringing the fun, the engaging part of it, but in the service of to be more effective. Yeah, yeah. So how do you how do you balance your time between the business and obviously you're you're part of comedy sports as well. How how active are you when you're kind of obviously balancing the the, the applied improv day work with comedy sports? Are you still very active in sports? 
Uh, so I'm not as active as I once was. Uh, certainly with the travel, it makes it a little bit harder. But, you know, um, I try to do probably one or two shows a month while I'm here in New York and uh, and kind of make sure that I'm meeting those commitments and get to one uh, practice uh, for sure. And so yeah. um, I used to be heavily involved as I was here more. But the more and more I travel, it's harder to do. But the beautiful thing, you know, Cummy Sports was a huge benefit for me when I was being a nomad because – it gave me a network of people to reach out to, and it gave me a, a great place to perform. So I think I performed in at least 15 or 16 cities during my nomadic yeah. journey. Uh, I've performed in 20 of the 25. Um, got to perform with uh, Manchester when I was in Edinburgh at the mm-hmm. you know Edinburgh Fringe, uh, yeah. which was great. And that also meant that I had a group of people that I could hang out with and meet and connect with. And so, uh, yeah, it was a huge benefit. So I'm still involved at the, the larger level, but more as a player, whereas before I used to do some some stuff on the managing side, and I just don't have the, the time to be able to do that as much now. Yeah, it's an awesome network, the CSZ network of comedy sports shows. There's like, what, 20 cities in the U.S.? Yeah, it's like it's. I think it's 23 because there's 25 total, and yeah. so I'm I'm five away from from doing all of them. So that'll be you know that's par- partially the next goal. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um. I'll, so I'm gonna just bring you back around as we kind of close this down. So you're you're <laughs> writing a book at the moment. Yeah. So I'm writing. I'm working on two. The main one, the the first one that will come out will be 50 states, 50 stories. So that's more of the the journey of me as a nomad. And the second one is a book on humor in the workplace. So kind of, I want to write the business book on humor um, that is driven more from kind of what I I speak and train on. And so that'll come out a little bit later, but uh, there's kind of two that I'm balancing at the moment. Okay. And are they going to be like available on Amazon? Yep. Yeah. So they'll be available on Amazon. Uh, The 50 States, 50 stories book will come out probably in March um or so but yeah i'll certainly announce it through my newsletter and on my website and all that kind of stuff so if people are interested in it they can kind of follow me on either uh humor that works on twitter or you know via my newsletter at humorthatworks.com. but uh it'll so certainly be available on amazon and plenty of other places as well and all those domains that you've named will be in the podcast notes once the podcast has been broadcast there'll be notes underneath going so you can go to those links i'm going to put you on the spot with one final question which is what is your favorite improv game favorite improv game uh i love jump up games i love the the last chance games and comedy sports and i would say my favorite one of those so uh would be um um uh, I combined a blank with a blank. Uh, yeah. What'd you get? What the name is? What'd you get? It took me a minute uh, to get there, but I love puns, and so I love the ability to on the spot think of a bunch of puns and make the audience groan. Yeah, yeah, I I, I like those games too. It's it's the, I think it's the stand up brain, isn't it? It's the kind of yeah. The, the, yeah that that immediate payoff. And yep. yeah, awesome, good stuff. Drew, thank you so much for um, coming on and doing the Bring a Break podcast. Absolutely, thank you for for having me. For more interviews, visit the bringabrickpodcast.com website. While you're there, you can also sign up for the mailing list and send me your comments and recommendations. And if you like what you've heard, please do rate and review. Every click does help.